0: Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: House
2: is a very, very, very fine
3: house. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman, Right, I'm Buzz Eisenberg, and we are joined by Congressman Jim McGovern. Thank you so much for being with us again today, as you are every month, Congressman. We really appreciate your time. I want to ask you your reaction to. The indictments against Donald Trump—thirty-four counts in New York. What's your sense?
4: Well, I mean, obviously, he's very, very serious, and um, you know, and this is the first of what could be, you know, other uh, indictments against him. I mean, we're still awaiting to hear what the grand jury in Georgia decides uh, with regard to his tampering uh, in the twenty with the twenty twenty election. Uh, And then we have a special counsel looking into his mishandling of uh, classified documents in the cover-up. And so this is the first of what can be, you know, a number of cases against him. But look, um, a a, a grand jury of regular people uh, got together, looked at the evidence, um, and made this recommendation. Uh, You know, uh, I guess the good news for Donald Trump is this is the first time he's ever won the popular vote. So (laughs) that's in his favor, right? But the bottom line is this is a serious matter. I mean, this president, uh, you know, was the first president ever to be, uh, former president ever to be arrested. And, um, you know, obviously uh, it's an unfortunate, you know, moment in our nation's history on one hand. On the other hand, um, you know, and I said this when I spoke to, A ceremony, a naturalization ceremony um, at uh, UMass the other day, uh, that this also uh, is an important uh, reminder that in this country, nobody is above the law, not even a former president. Uh, And I think that that's an important standard for us to uphold. So he'll have his day in court. He's raising a gazillion dollars. And so he has the best legal defense that money can buy. And he can, you know, make his case then. But I don't think anybody disputes the fact uh, that uh, he uh, you know, had this uh, fling with Stormy Daniels and that there was money to basically hush it up uh, right before the election. And so, you know, we'll see how it goes. But uh, in any event, uh, uh, as, as, as unfortunate as, as it is for this country that we have to deal with this, it is also, I think, a reminder that about you know what this country stands for, and that is nobody's above the law.
3: Congressman McGovern, the Republicans, and certainly the Republican leadership has rallied to Trump's defense, making claims it's a political prosecution. Uh, he's a political prisoner. There's no validity to this. It's too old. Uh, he's being targeted and so on. So the Republican leadership has made its position clear. I'm wondering if there is a Uniform or nearly uniform reaction among Democrats. Well, I think the,
4: I mean, I mean, I, I haven't read everybody's statements, but uh, uh, and President Biden has been quiet on this, which is probably the right thing to do. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, he'll have his day in court. Uh, he's not a political prisoner. He's living a luxurious lifestyle, you know, at his retreat in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, he's raising millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, from his base to not only pay for his legal defense, but I think to keep some of that money for himself. And uh, so, you know, I I don't really quite get that charge. I mean, other than the fact that they don't want to focus in on the fact that this president, you know, uh, has been involved in criminal behavior time and time and time and time again. If there's nothing there, at the end of the day, a jury will... Acquit him, and he'll then he'll 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 beat this charge. I mean, he has others that, as I said, he's going to have to deal with. But um, you know, the, the, the notion that that uh, and, by, and by the way, and, and it wasn't the district attorney who was able to indict him; it was this grand jury that voted to indict him. So it, it's, I, 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 you know, and and here's the thing that really puzzles me: there are other Republicans running for president or who may run for president who stand for the same awful ideas that Donald Trump stands for. Um, and so Republican voters have a choice. I mean, they can they can support any one of these other candidates who have equally bad views on, on, the, on the issues. Why they feel that they still have to be loyal to this guy who has ripped them off and who, uh, you know, has dinner with a white supremacist who says racist things, who incites violence is beyond me. You know, it is time for Republicans, you know, who may share the same ideology as Donald Trump to drop him Uh, for the sake of our country. Move on. But but as it stands right now, the last poll I saw, he's the hands down front runner for the Republican nomination. He's beating Ron DeSantis, DeSantis by double digits and everybody else by even you know by, by huge margins. So, um, uh, so I mean I think I think for all of us we, we we need to let the legal process you know work its way through and you know see what happens. Uh, the, the, at, at this point, it's not, it's not a political question; it is a legal question.
3: Congressman McGovern, do you have any qualms about the fact that this charge, uh, this? covering up and lying on campaign finance forms and tax forms and the like about the payment to Stormy Daniel, that this charge, in my opinion, and I think others share it, uh, is relatively minor compared to an insurrection on January 6th or trying to uh, uh, force a uh, election official in Georgia to change the results in that state. I mean, this seems like Kind of small potatoes compared to that. I'm not saying it's not a serious matter, but relatively not as important as that. Does this, this being the charge that might uh, force Trump uh, to well, it may have political consequences. Let's put it that way. Does it does that cause you any any misgivings? Look, th-
4: this case was the case that that uh, the new york district attorney was dealing with this was within their jurisdiction there's another case that gets to january 6th and the interference in the election that's going on in georgia we'll see what happens there and then there's this other issue of uh mishandling of classified material and a cover-up and we'll get to that later so i mean i mean it, it just so happens that that new york goes first and we'll see what happens in these other cases but the way I look at it uh, is this way: um, you know, are there other cases in New York that are similar to this, where these charges have been brought? And the answer to that is yes. So the district attorney in his press conference pointed out that you know this is not unique in the sense that you know uh, he's he's being singled out for these charges, whereas others who have committed civil, similar crimes have not been so you know we, we, the new york case is the new york case and we'll we'll let it go but i mean you know we're not choreographing you know this is not something that you can choreograph uh from afar i mean you know each jurisdiction has their responsibilities and their and their cases to deal with and they have to deal with that uh you know the new york district attorney does not have the you know the 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 the, the jurisdiction to deal with you know the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, that's, 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 you know, or his direct interference, uh, in, um, in trying to change the electoral college results. That's, that, that's, 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 that those are other jurisdictions. So, um, so I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not looking at it in those terms about, you know, what is the, what is the more significant criminal act that he committed? I mean, the bottom line is, um, he will the, all these things will be evaluated and decided upon um, in the appropriate jurisdictions.
3: Congressman McGovern, I was struck by your comment about President Biden having remained silent. That was actually, uh, or quiet anyway, about the Trump indictment, which was a front-page story in The New York Times yesterday about, and it was about how Trump has once again become the focus and the center of attention, and President Biden is not. Still, there is a lot of work that needs to be done for the country. And before we get to one or two other really important matters today, I'd like to find out from you whether Congress is doing the people's work. There is a significant budget matter and the question of the need for legislation to raise the national debt. It's enormously important. Is it going to happen?
4: Well, it has to happen. And if it doesn't, uh, then... You know, we ruin our economy. It's that simple. I mean, and that dramatic as well. Uh, I mean, we don't have an option. I mean, if you don't pay your bills, if you don't pay your credit card bills, it hurts your credit rating. Uh, and, the, and, you know, raising the debt ceiling is about paying the bills that you have already accumulated. It's not about how you're going to spend money in the future. That is yet to be decided. This is about bills you've already accumulated, that you've put on your credit card. So the consequences of not raising the debt ceiling are dire for this country, um, and so we 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 have to do this,
3: Congressman. Do you know? And, what, excuse me, you know, for just one sec. Yeah. Do, can you tell us? Do you know why, or, or is there an agreement about by when the date by which Congress has to raise the debt so, ceiling?
4: Yeah. So we don't have an exact date yet, um, but we're, we we think it's probably the end of June or you know the middle of July. Um, so we're it's, we're we're fast approaching. You know the uh, you know the, the the important date in which we have to act and we really can't wait until like a day before because that too would have dire consequences on our economy and on our credit rating um, and and look uh, the Republicans are trying to use it as leverage I mean they're trying to um, say that what, you know we don't, we're not going to let you do this unless you go after Social Security or Medicare or uh, or if you you know, gut snap, which is the subject of a New York Times story today. I mean, that's their new target, um, beating up on poor people, taking food away from hungry people, which is a cruel and rotten thing to do. Uh, but they think it plays well for their base. So that's that's their new target. Uh, but the bottom line is that this is not this is not the place to have that debate, the place to have the debate on whether you're going to you know, make sure people don't go hungry in this country is on the budget is on the farm bill is on the is in the appropriations process and you know um, and they'll have plenty of leverage uh, when we get to those bills because they control uh, the House of Representatives but you know to play these games with the debt ceiling is is really reckless and irresponsible and I'll just say one final thing when Donald Trump was president i, I despised m- most of his policies uh you know the the giveaways to fossil fuel companies, the tax cuts for billionaires and big corporations. By the way, that added trillions of dollars to our debt. And when it came to raising the debt ceiling, I voted to raise the debt ceiling, not because I agreed with any of the policies that the former president pursued, but because to not do so would be irresponsible. It would ruin our economy. So we got to check the politics, you know, uh, at the door and actually do the right thing. And and if kevin mccarthy doesn't want to do the right thing what he should just do is allow us to have a vote on a a clean on an up or down vote on a clean debt ceiling and i bet you we can probably get about five or six republicans to join us and we could avoid uh, an economic catastrophe
3: congressman mcgovern i know you have to run but before you do i would appreciate your thoughts about what has been happening in the tennessee legislature
4: i mean it is scary right um You know, the uh, I mean, these brave legislators who um, basically peacefully protested the fact that the Tennessee legislature won't even deal with the issue of uh, gun violence or gun control uh, are now being threatened with expulsion because they dared to engage in peaceful protest. Uh, Talk about anti-democratic, anti-democracy. Um, and we see something similar that happening in in Wisconsin, with that the, we have a new, uh, thankfully, a, a, a election that elected a, a a woman to the Supreme Court there, who actually is pro-choice and is not going to make abortion a federal crime and throw women in jail who have abortions or punish doctors. That's a that's a that's a that's a positive development for Wisconsin and for the country. But now we're being told that there is talk amongst the. A Republican-controlled legislature there that they might want to impeach her. I mean, she just won a a, a a huge victory. It wasn't even close. And because they don't like her politics, they're now talking openly about potentially impeaching her. This is crazy, right? You know, we we, we we've talked on on this show time and time again about preserving our democracy, and it's not just kind of a you know an abstract. Um, debating point or idea to throw out there. I mean, our democracy really is under attack, not only at the federal level, but you see what's happening in the legislatures. I disagree with you on gun control. I'm going to, I'm going to oust you from the legislature. Oh, you, you won this judgeship. Oh my goodness. And you're pro-choice and you believe in abortion rights. Well, I know you won by a big margin, but we want to, we might impeach you anyway, because we don't like your views. And the hell with what the people want. This is a very, very dangerous moment. And you add what's happening at the state level with the rhetoric coming out of the former president, this is the time for people to really pay attention, to be engaged um, and to fight back any attempt at the local state or federal level where you see these tactics to try to undo democracy uh, moving forward. I mean, we we need to we need to be heard. We need to stand up. We need to push back because uh, this is a very, very dangerous moment uh, in our nation's history.
3: We've been speaking with Congressman Jim McGovern, Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for being with us every month, Congressman. We really appreciate your time and you. Great with you. Be safe.
0: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP.
5: Hear Howie at Broadside Books. Maybe you've read Howie's poems and reviews in Great River Review, Nimrod, Cutthroat, Off the Coast, or Nine Mile. Howie gets around. He jokes that he's an adjunct emeritus. He's taught creative writing at so many different colleges, a five-time Pushcart Prize nominee, lives in Florence, and volunteers at the Center for New Americans. Broadside, Howie will read from his newly published volume of poetry, Stay. So go. Hear Howie Feierstein read from Stay this Wednesday at 7 at Broadside Books.
2: Come on over to the co-op, the for Cooperative Bank.
5: At Greenfield Cooperative
6: Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th. Be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing
0: lender. Member FDIC. Eight, member DIF. You
1: can count on your friends at the COA.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
3: Well, we are back, and we want to share with you the front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette today, returning to the story about the controversy over the non-hiring of Vito Perone as the superintendent of the East Hampton School Department. Headline, top of the fold. Virtual crowd swamps meeting on super. School committee postponed session after Zoom TV stream options overwhelmed. That's one of the two stories. The second one, also front page, top of the fold. One of two ladies seeks to distance herself from Fuhrer over job offer. Colby defends use of words, saying to her it represents respect. So let's look at these Two stories, both written by Emily Thurlow, who's a staff writer for the Daily Hampshire Gazette, Dateline, East Hampton. I'm going to read a couple sentences. A school committee meeting Thursday night to discuss the search for a new superintendent of schools went off the rails and was canceled after hundreds of people attempted to sign into the Zoom meeting, the Zoom session, and were cut off when the meeting hit its limit of 300 participants. School committee members didn't realize until moments before their meeting started that there was a limit on the number of people who could attend the virtual session. The story goes on to talk about the various electronic fixes that were tried, none of which worked, and so the meeting was postponed. And that seems to be right. There was consultation with town council as to what to do in the circumstances. The mayor, who I take it is the presiding officer, of the school committee uh, was in touch with the attorney for the town who said yes uh, canceling it under these the meeting under these circumstances is correct and well good for the city uh, having dealt with it appropriately there was a, apparently according to the story by Emily Thirlwell uh, in today's Gazette uh, statements by the mayor that well when there are more people than can attend in person at an in-person meeting uh, those people are, can't attend. Uh, fortunately, I think democracy won out here and the meeting did not go forward. People who want to participate, who want to be present, who want to hear, who wanted to be part of this process uh, are going to be, in the end, allowed to attend, have their voices heard, and to be able to see their governmental officials uh, in action doing the work that they were elected to perform. As far as I know, the new meeting date has not yet been set. The other story, one of two ladies, that is in quotes, seeks to distance herself from the furor over job offer. Let me share with you a couple sentences from that story. One of the two women whom superintendent finalist Vito Peron addressed as ladies in an email last week is seeking to distance herself from mudslinging that has erupted after the news broke last weekend. I want to be clear, I am a lady. That's in quotes. Executive Assistant Suzanne Colby wrote in a fa- public Facebook post that on April 5th. I appreciate being called a lady. Let me, the, the sound you hear is of an actual newspaper rustling. There we go. For those of you who uh, of a certain generation who are not familiar with this process, never mind. I'll just go on. Here we go. She says, I appreciate being treated as such... To me, the word represents respect. I am not offended by the word or item. However, however, being in caps, I am respectful to those who may be offended by the word or term. Those of you who know me know how important it is to me in caps to be respectful of all, also in caps, individuals. Colby noted that her name and title were used in the email from Perone for procedural purposes. During contract negotiations last week, she requested that everyone refrain from defaming her name, reputation, and character for something she did not say nor have a say in, which seems to me absolutely right. Here's what what the story goes on to say. Some comments on social media have turned vitriolic, with some defaming the character and reputation of those on the school committee as well as Colby, who does not contribute to the substance of the committee's meetings. Let's say that again as well as Colby, who does not contribute to the substance of the committee meetings. Colby has been an employee of the school district for 27 years, 27 years, and is not a voting member of the school committee, nor is she an elected official. The story correctly states has, she has gotten tangled in the crosshairs. Here's one other, I think, very important uh, piece for uh, listeners to appreciate. Quote, the city of East Hampton also issued a press advisory clarifying that Colby attends all school committee meetings only to take minutes as required by state law. Let's try that again. She's there to take the minutes as required by state law. As part of her role, the story goes on to say she asks only clarifying questions to to document for the public record properly that according to the press release from the city of East Hampton. Two other pieces from the story from today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. State Senator John Velas, the Democrat of Westfield, who attended Monday's protest, issued a statement after hearing from constituents. He says, this is John Velas, the state senator. If the allegations are true that the incoming East Hampton superintendent had to had his offer rescinded solely due to the way he addressed an email, then things have gone too far. This appears to be an over-the-top and disproportionate response to something that, if nothing else, could have been used as a teachable moment. Enough is enough, Vila said. The other state politician from the city, Dan Carey, declined comment on Wednesday. Let's take a break. We'll come back. We have more to say about this. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One of two women whom Superintendent Finalist Vito Perone addressed as ladies in an email last week is speaking out about the controversy. Suzanne Colby wrote on Facebook that she has no problem being referred to as a lady and she is not offended. However, she is respectful to those who may have been offended by the term. Colby also asked that her name not be defamed over something she had no say in. The controversy happened after the East Hampton School Committee offered Vito Perone the superintendent position and then quickly rescinded it. According to the Gazette, Perone is speaking with a lawyer and will not be discussing the incident further. A federal judge in Texas ruled last week that insurance companies do not have to pay for preventative care for patients anymore. Dr. Jonathan Bayek said this ruling is terrible news for public health advocates.
6: There are people who are going to need those services and if you don't provide preventative care and people don't have the money to pay for it they won't get it
7: the biden administration has said they plan to appeal the ruling an investigation is underway after turners falls high school reportedly received an anonymous generalized threat of potential school violence for today families of turners falls high school and great falls middle school received an email from superintendent brian beck notifying them the threat is not considered credible at this time by the local police and school officials. Turners Falls High School is hosting a regional student council event today and remains open.
8: Good morning. A couple of breaks of sunshine for the first half of the day. Otherwise, it's mostly cloudy today. Watch out for scattered showers, even a thunderstorm this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74 Partial clearing tonight, cooling down. Overnight low, 36 to 42. Sun cloud mix breezy tomorrow, a high of 52 to 56. Dry for the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
7: This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media.
9: Yo soy Oja Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden se aventuró el lunes a los suburbios de Minneapolis para hablar sobre trabajos en fábricas y contrastar su agenda con el último tipo que tuvo este trabajo. El último tipo, como Biden llama a Donald Trump, aterrizaba simultáneamente en Nueva York para convertirse en el primer expresidente en ser arrestado. La Casa Blanca de Biden, que se ha negado a involucrarse en el espectáculo legal que rodea a Trump, esperaba convertir el momento de la pantalla dividida en una oportunidad para mostrar los logros del presidente y una administración relativa libre de dramas representó una repetición de la elección que los votantes hicieron en 2020 y que podrían tener que hacer nuevamente en 2024 ya que ambos hombres tienen la intención de buscar la casa blanca biden se ofreció a sí mismo como un formulador de políticas veterano mientras que trump siempre el farandulero pretendía utilizar la lectura de cargos del martes por cargos penales para generar donaciones de campaña y animar a los votantes republicanos en otras informaciones y como parte del proyecto De arte público, El Corazón de Holyoke, Nueva Esperanza y Humas Amherst han traído desde Puerto Rico a cuatro artistas, parte del colectivo Moribibí, una colectiva de mujeres artistas visuales y activistas, quienes están trabajando en un nuevo mural, el cual se instalará en el Distrito Cultural Puertorriqueño de Holyoke una vez esté completado a finales de abril. Durante el pasado fin de semana, la comunidad se dio cita para pintar junto con las artistas diferentes secciones del mural y este martes 4 de abril, el colectivo Moribiví está invitando nuevamente a la comunidad a que participen de esta experiencia para pintar en conjunto los segmentos restantes de La Cultura es Poder desde las 3 y 30 de la tarde en Nueva Esperanza, ubicado en el 401 de la calle Main en South Holyoke. Yo soy Johan Rechivega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
7: This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
3: We continue our conversation regarding the rescission of the offer to the East Hampton school superintendent to be, Vito Perone. Two other aspects of the story uh, written uh, for today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. Again, it's a front page story, two front page stories above the fold by Emily Thoreau. One aspect of the story that I think we really owe it to you to mention is the well-being check part of it. The school committee apparently uh, made its decision to make the offer, a four-to-three vote to make the offer. It was late at night, and apparently someone called late at night, uh, like at 12 or 12.30, to let the uh, uh, successful candidate know that he had been selected. Why someone called at 12 or 12.30 at night to let him know is... It's a very odd way to let somebody know. Yeah, you would—I I think we, I think we're on safe ground in this controversy saying that was weird— to say the least. And then when he didn't pick up his phone after midnight, I, it seems totally reasonable to me. Why they were calling after midnight is not clear to me at all. Uh, but then someone, and we don't know who, called the East Hampton police to go and do a wellness check to make sure he was okay because someone wasn't picking up their phone after midnight. Really. Um, let me read two sentences from this uh, well-investigated story, some residents are raising questions about the circumstances surrounding the March 24th executive session, which I'll get back to in just a moment, uh, and it says this, um, as well as the well-being check on Perone, a West Hampton resident, after he did not answer his phone when school committee members called at 12.30 a.m. to offer him the job initially. What, if you don't answer your phone at 12.30 a.m., you call the police and say, Ghost, make sure that person." okay? you got to make sure that
5: person is all right. What else could they be doing at 12.30 a.m.?
3: According to the East Hampton Police Department, a call came into the city's dispatch at 11.53 on March 23rd, requesting the well-being check. A city police officer responded to Brown's address after midnight, made contact with him and reported that, quote, the party is all set, end quote, according to city's police log. At least it wasn't a no-knock. At this point, (laughs) yeah, at this point, it is unclear who actually made this call. The question about executive session, I think, is an important one, because uh, I think, yes, you are allowed under the public meeting law uh, for a public body to go into executive session to discuss a couple of specific matters, one being litigation, another being personnel matters. So... The call to go into executive session, I think, is proper. But I think the elected officials of East Hampton owe an explanation. Come on, guys. This is a matter that is not only of public interest here in East Hampton and Northampton and Western Massachusetts. It's a matter that was a significant story in the Boston Globe yesterday uh, and has gone national. It's an international. You owe the public an explanation.
5: But I I think that the way that this has been handled has made it more complicated. That is, if there were good reasons, if there were good reasons to go into executive session, um, then now they're being called upon to go public and talk about it. And I'm not sure if the candidate, the finalist, Vito Perone, who is reported by Emily Thurlow this morning um, to be consulting with an attorney— he may not want to be talking about the very things which people want uh, the school committee to talk about. And the school committee may be hamstrung because, oh, it deserved executive session before. What about now when he is asking to consult with an attorney? I'm not sure what his legal basis is, but there you have it. There was no contract. Maybe, Maybe he's been defamed. I don't know, but it's gotten complicated, more complicated than it ever had to be.
3: Yeah, I don't see the defamation. The school committee reported that it had rescinded the offer. That's accurate. What's untrue about what the school? I I
5: don't see a cause of action, but we haven't, we're not the lawyers involved. I think that there was a report earlier, again, by the
3: same reporter from the Gazette, uh, that had uh, said that he had consulted with the Massachusetts Association of School. Uh, school committees or school superintendents, and that uh, in the story by Emily Thurlow that she reported earlier, that uh, uh, that they, he was advised that there was no legal basis. So maybe there is,
5: but I I don't I don't see it. I, I don't either. And well to be continued. But you know, the bottom line is this is all so badly handled. It's so sad. I think we can agree with that. It's also uh, I
3: think actually. Really an educational moment. and it shows why this could have been used as an educational moment because the debate is actually, I think interesting, important, uh, raises significant issues, Good for the community for being involved. But the intensity around uh, his non-hiring, that didn't it didn't have to be this way.
5: That's right, but I I want to be a lifelong learner. I'm going to expunge the L word from my vocabulary. Well, then we're going to have a difficult time
3: discussing this story because the ladies is the word that okay, was used, sorry. that is the topic that we are talking about. So we got to use the word because, because it's the subject. And it's not in and of itself uh, uh, a word of, uh, that, is, that is offensive to everyone. Um, And I think we owe it to our listeners to use the word that, in fact, was used. We'll be right back.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
10: There's the Sauvignon Blanc side and the salami sandwich side, the brick and feather beer side and the broccoli side, the deli side and the Don Julio side. State Street in Northampton has two sides. Grocery on one side, beer, wines, and spirits on the other. Cooper's Corner in Florence has two sides. Grocery on one side, beer, wines, and spirits on the other. But the nice thing about State Street and Cooper's, you don't have to pick a side. You can choose both sides, at both stores. The world feels so divided sometimes. For once, don't choose sides. Go to both sides, at both stores. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton and Cooper's Corner on the other side of Northampton in Florence. Two sides, same coin.
8: What's new at the Wheatley Inn? everything the Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area the only thing that hasn't changed is the menu offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for the Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7 pickup is also available with easy online ordering visit waitleyinn.com eat greatly at the Waitley
0: Push, push, come on,
8: one more. Let's go, go, go.
7: Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton.
11: It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, Their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us. Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586
0: 1000. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
3: Welcome to our segment that once upon a time was called The Reverend and the Rabbi and is now called Have Faith. Our guest person of faith today is the Reverend Andrea Avazian, who is part of the Spiritual Leadership team at the Alden Baptist Church in Springfield, Springfield, and formerly was the uh, pastor at the Haydenville Congregational Church as well. We're going to come back at the end of the segment and spend a minute talking about the new pastor for the Haydenville Congregational Church. Uh, But first, I'd like to ask you, Andrea Vazian, uh, you are not only a pastor, you are an accomplished poet, and you have brought to my attention, and our attention, that this is National Poetry Month. Uh, Let's just pause here for a moment. Tell our listeners, if you would, please, because you are a poet, a very accomplished poet, uh, what National Poetry Month is. And then my second question for you is, why and how does poetry play a part in your spiritual life, but first, National Poetry Month.
12: National Poetry Month. So we're celebrating. We are celebrating. It was uh, initiated in April of 1996 by the American Academy of Poets. And it, National Poetry Month is currently the largest worldwide literary celebration in the world. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, the question of why poetry matters and poetry and spirituality, I think that's a great question. And... I think that poems are truth, simple truth, profound, someone's deep and profound truth. And in a world filled with falsehoods and misinformation, biased information, missing history, poetry and art are true. They are someone's fundamental truth. And poems enter our bodies through our hearts, not our heads. And so they affect us deeply, emotionally and We are changed by poems, deeply changed by poems. I've read these words by an anonymous author. Only three things can change our lives. Dreams, suffering, and love. And I think art and poetry are dreams made visible. And they can and do change our lives. The Psalms in the Bible are all poems. A lot of poetry is used in worship services. And it's because poems inspire, stimulate change, give us hope. They're a new way of seeing a path forward and an eternal truth. And I think poems give pastors like me words when we have run out of words, when we cannot find words. Poems give us new words for a thought or a feeling. And as I said, they give us hope, they make us braver, and they make us bolder.
3: So, Reverend Andrew (laughs) Vazian, tell me this. I was greatly influenced by a book I read many decades ago called Thinking on Paper. And that book makes the point that writing things down is not a matter of writing down what you already know or believe. It's a matter of exploring what you believe and what you want to say. And I'm wondering whether your writing of poems and your revising and the honing of of those words bring you closer to faith.
12: Very much so, Bill, very much so. When I start working on a poem, I let it arise from deep in my gut, and I don't overthink it. And it creates itself in a way. It comes forward in a very organic, in a very spiritual way, and comes forward and even surprises me. So that when I am writing a poem, I experience what we talk a lot about in faith, which is surrender. And I don't, being such a willful person in the world, I don't surrender easily or often. But I surrender when I write poetry. And it creates itself and emerges emerges from deep within my soul and then comes out on paper.
3: Let me ask you this. Uh, When you write a poem, And this really, for me, goes back to something I believe Sylvia Plath said. She said, when my poems are published, it's actually not the final poem. It's just the state of the poem at the time when it came time to publish. And I'm wondering if you go back and change your poems later on and say, yes, I wrote that some time ago, but I feel differently now, or my faith has moved me in a different direction, or once it's done, it's done.
12: Sylvia Plath and I are different this way. (laughs) So funny to even have my poems in the same sentence as hers. My poems are pretty much done when they're done. I may look back and think I would change that, or I would emphasize that, or I would even admit that word or line, but I don't tend to retype them. I move on and create something new in the moment that speaks to where I am presently, currently. So I don't tend to go back. When they're done, it's like they have been birthed and given to the world. And I have a number of published chapbooks, and I've done a number of poetry readings, and they have been given to the world for better or for worse. Poems have wings, and they fly out from the poet and land where they land. And for me, when a poem is written and done, it's done.
3: Want to share one of your poems with us?
12: I'd like to, yes. Um, This is from a chapbook called Souls Floating By, and the poem is called The Only Sermon. If we dug a huge grave miles wide, miles deep, and buried every rifle, pistol, knife, bullet, bomb, bayonet, if we jumped upon fleets of tanks and fighter jets with toolboxes, torches unwelded them, dismantled them, turned them into scrap metal. If every light-skinned man in a silk tie said to every dark-skinned man in a turban, I vow not to kill your children and heard the same vow in return. If every elected leader agreed to stop lying, if every child was fed as well as racehorses bred to win derbies... If every person with a second home gave it to a person with no home. If every mother buried her parents, not her sons and daughters. If every person who has enough said out loud, I have enough. If every person violent in the name of God would find God, we would grow silent, still for a moment, a lifetime. We would hear infants nursing at the breast hummingbirds hovering in flight. We would touch a canyon wall and feel the earth vibrate. We would hear two lovers sigh across the ocean. We would watch old wounds grow new flesh and jagged scars disappear. As time was layered upon time, we would slowly be ready to begin.
3: You were listening to the Reverend Andrea Vazian, reading from her chapbook, the title of which is Souls Floating By. The title of that poem, Andrea? Is
12: the title of that poem, that poem, Souls Floating By, which gave the chapbook its title, is about my husband, Michael Clare, going into our backyard and seeing wispy clouds floating through the sky. And he was out there a long time, and when he came inside, I said, Michael why were you staring at the sky so long? And he said, my parents' souls were floating by.
3: Wow. Wow. That's some story. When do you write? Do you have a regular schedule?
12: I don't have a regular schedule. I write when I am moved and inspired. I often run back from walks or long bike rides searching for a, uh, a paper and pencil so I can get something that occurred to me when I was out in nature down on paper. Um, That happened just the other day. I was out on a walk after I had cared for my two-year-old granddaughter, Fiona, and I was out on a walk after she had gone back home, and I rushed back to start writing a poem, which I'm currently working on, about putting a two-year-old down for a nap. Do do you write lit Literally with a pen or a pencil to begin. I do. I am a person who loves paper. I love shopping lists on paper. I love receipts. I love envelopes. I love cards. I love catalogs. I love stamps. I love birthday cards that appear quietly in your mailbox. I love paper. So I actually take. Which sounds a like a pack. poem.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I love paper, or the paper I love. <laughs>
12: that <There> could <laughs> exactly be a poem. And so I take out a yellow pad like I have brought one here today and I take out a pencil and I write with paper and pencil. And then someday um, when it has been worked through and crossed out and improved and edited on the yellow pad, it goes into the computer. But I write on paper and I love fountain pens and I, I am very tactile.
5: My question, Reverend Evazian, is I- I've had friends who write poetry and they say that they write it for themselves. When you talk about it's ready for the world, and I offer this for the world, are you writing to articulate something you think is important for other people to hear? Are you writing to clarify your own feelings about the matter you're writing about?
12: Oh, Buzz, that's a tough one, and I would sort of say both. (laughs) Um, Sometimes I write a poem because I can't not, because it is burning and it wants to come out, But And I do write to clarify as it rises up for my soul and for my spirit, and I feel like I have to write it. But I also write poetry to tell the world, to say um, something I need to say to the world, and I don't want to say it in yet another Gazette column, and I don't want to say it in a sermon, and I want to say it in poetry form and hope that it lands and makes a difference. Would you
3: share another one?
12: I'm going to share another one. I brought all these poems of other people, but in response to what um, Buzz has just said, I'm going to share this poem. This needed to be written and to be sent into the world. If you intend to send my son to war, if you intend to send my son to war, come tell me. Sit with me at the cherry table in my kitchen. Look me in the eye. Look into the eyes of all the mothers I will gather in my kitchen, maybe 10,000 mothers in dresses and aprons, veils and headscarves, saris and kimonos. Tell us about the enemy. We need to hear their names and why our sons should make them suffer. Tell us what our sons will do in detail. Do not omit a detail. Say the real words like kill and fire, bomb and destroy. Estimate the number lost, hurt, missing, gone, dead. Say the number. Tell us the chances our son will return, our sons will return alive, unhurt, not terrorized, still gentle, able to sleep. Listen while we tell you how we carried these boys and birthed them through tears and sweat with screams and prayers, blood, and unending gratitude. Stay seated in my kitchen as we explain that our love is more extravagant than all our beating hearts times one million. Learn how we defend these sons, protect them, kiss their matted hair, softly stroke their precious cheeks as they lay sleeping. Our sons will flee while we are speaking. We will keep you with us, until your need for war has passed.
5: Wow. Powerful.
3: So, Andrea, you've published a number of chapbooks. Does it bring you some joy to see those collected and out there and available and go to broadside and there they are? Does it bring you joy?
12: It brings me joy. It makes me feel vulnerable and exposed. Um, it makes me feel a little fearful that my words are out there and people are reading them and being critical. And I have had people being critical. So yes, it brings me joy, and it also brings me some anxiety.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that moment of truth, we leave it. This has been our segment on having faith with the Reverend Andrea Vasian.
2: No, I guess I called AA because
6: alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect, certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor, they seemed to be at ease. I hung around, now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics
13: Anonymous, it works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org.
1: What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local WHMP Northampton and
0: WRSIHD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station.
14: It's 10 o'clock.
0: This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com.
15: I'm Monica Ricks in New York. History could be made today in the Tennessee legislature. CBS's Jim Kersula explains. Gloria
6: Johnson is one of three Democratic Tennessee state representatives facing possible expulsion
13: today for protesting on the chamber floor for gun control. I want to defend myself. I want to tell the people of this state what happened and why.
6: Cameron Sexton is speaker of the Republican-controlled body. My opinion, they should be expelled. It would be the first partisan state lawmaker
15: expulsion in Tennessee.
6: Tennessee history.
15: The rally followed the school shooting in Nashville, where six people died, including children. Severe weather has killed at least one person and landed another in the hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. Mayor Craig Greenberg.
8: It would not surprise us if in the days coming, the National Weather Service confirms that more than one tornado touched down across Jefferson County. More than
15: 10,000 people there don't have power. At least five people were killed in Missouri. The number of Americans filing for unemployment fell again this week. Bank rates, Mark Hamrick.
0: The Labor Department says new claims for jobless benefits fell last week by 18,000 to 228,000. This level is still regarded to be historically low, reflecting a tight job market.
15: The government's monthly jobs report is due out tomorrow. A rust problem is now forcing Honda to recall more than half a million SUVs in some cold weather states. Jeff Gilbert reports.
8: The salt used to de-ice roads can cause the frames of some Honda CRVs to corrode. Honda's had 61 complaints. In some cases, the rear trailering arm can fall off. No injuries have been reported, no issues outside of the so-called salt belt. This impacts 07 to 2011 Honda CRVs.
15: New action now in one state on sports and transgender athletes. Here's CBS's Steve Kathan.
0: Kansas is banning transgender athletes from girls and women's sports from kindergarten through college. The Republican legislature overriding a third veto of the bill in three years from Democratic Governor Laura Kelly. Nineteen other states have similar bans. This is the first of what could be several new Kansas laws restricting the rights of transgender people in the state. A broad bathroom bill passed just the other day.
15: The Masters is now officially underway at Augusta National in Georgia. Jack Nicklaus with the ceremonial (laughs) tee-off. Defending champ Scotty Scheffler aims to be the first player since Tiger Woods to win back-to-back green jackets. Tiger himself is set to tee-off in just a few minutes. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 120 points, the Nasdaq down 50. This is CBS News.
0: Hire with minimal effort and maximum success with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Visit Indeed.com credit.
2: My spaniel sailor arrives each afternoon for his walk in the steep woods. And usually in the spring, we return with plenty of tales of spotted white-tailed deer and a stream-soaked coat of wet hair. Eden Pure thunderstorms air purifier that uses proven oxy technology to the rescue. I plug the compact unit into the wall and let Sailor relax in the freshening air. And the unit comes with a six-foot USB cord for when we travel. There are over 300,000 units already sold. There are no filters to buy over and over again. Right now you can save $200 on an Eden Pure Thunderstorm 3-pack for whole home protection. You get three units for under $200 for the kitchen, the basement, the fireplace room, the mudroom, anywhere you need clean smelling air. Go to EdenPureDeals.com and put in discount code JOHN, J-O-H-N, to save $200. That's EdenPureDeals.com, discount code JOHN. Shipping.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One of two women whom Superintendent Finalist Vito Peron addressed as ladies in an email last week is speaking out about the controversy. Suzanne Colby wrote on Facebook that she has no problem being referred to as a lady and she is not offended However, she is respectful to those who may have been offended by the term. Colby also asked that her name not be defamed over something she had no say in. The controversy happened after the East Hampton School Committee offered Vito Perone the superintendent position and then quickly rescinded it. According to the Gazette, Perone is speaking with a lawyer and will not be discussing the incident further. A federal judge in Texas ruled last week that insurance companies do not have to pay for preventative care for patients anymore. Dr. Jonathan Bayek said this ruling is terrible news for public health advocates.
6: There are people who are going to need those services, and if you don't provide preventative care and people don't
9: have the money to pay for it, they won't get it.
7: The Biden administration has said they plan to appeal the ruling. An investigation is underway after Turner's Falls High School reportedly received an anonymous generalized threat of potential school violence for today. Families of Turner's Falls High School and Great Falls Middle School received an email from Superintendent Brian Beck Notifying them the threat is not considered credible at this time by the local police and school officials. Turners Falls High School is hosting a regional student council event today and remains open.
8: Good morning. A couple of breaks of sunshine for the first half of the day. Otherwise, it's mostly cloudy today. Watch out for scattered showers, even a thunderstorm this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Partial clearing tonight, cooling down, overnight low 36 to 42. Sun cloud mix breezy tomorrow, a high of 52 to 56. Dry for the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015, WHMP.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
5: And welcome to Talk to Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, this is Brian Adams. This is our segment, our weekly segment, which I just love. I'm always learning from. Science and sensibility with Brian Adams. Spring is springing,
16: Brian. Spring has sprung. It's a full moon tonight. I don't know if we'll see it uh, with the cloudy weather. The pink moon, right? No, that is not the pink moon. That's what... uh, those call it, but we in the know at WHMP have renamed it the Frog and Salamander Moon, because at least down here in the valley, the wood frogs are quack quack quacking, and the peepers are <laughs> peeping, and the spotted salamanders are—that's the spotted salamander. <laughs> right? So I think most people most people can do that. And as spring 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 sprungs no sprung springs, <laughs> as spring is here. A lot of people who are able are getting out in the woods and walking in the woods. Uh, And who better to tell us about uh, changes in the New England landscape, changes in the wood, than Tom Wessels. Tom, thank you for joining us today.
6: Uh, My pleasure to be here, Brian.
16: Tom is a terrestrial ecologist. He is a professor emeritus at Antioch University, New England, in the Department of Environmental Studies. Tom founded a master's uh, program in conservation biology, and the most famous person to come out of that master's program is, wait for it, wait for it, me. Tom was was my advisor at Antioch. He was a wonderful professor. He got me involved in my community college teaching, uh, where I taught for over 20 years at Greenfield Community College, and in teaching natural history for 20 years, one of my Required textbooks was Reading the Forested Landscape, a Natural History of New England by Tom Wessels. Uh, so, Tom, it's really great to have you on the show. So, let's begin with this. Tom, when you're out walking in the woods, for those that are able, you walk long enough, you walk far enough, and you see the forest begin to change. Everything is not the same. You might start in a dark stand of Uh, of hemlocks. You come around the bend, suddenly no more evergreens. You're in a beech, maple uh, forest. Um, You come around the corner, Oop! there you are in a pasture. Um, The forest is in constant change as you walk through the woods. And let's start with one of the sort of of, of something that is confusing to many folks. You may be out in the hill towns and it's a steep slope. You're in the middle. Of friggin nowhere and there are stone walls everywhere in the midst of this deep dark forest here are these stone walls and let's talk about this eighth wonder of the world tom you are like the sherlock holmes of forests uh, right um trying to solve the mystery of what happened here and when let's begin with these these magical stone walls of new england what are they why are they there and what was their purpose
14: well,
6: the area that um, I focus on mostly at the Stone Walls is the central portion of New England, which includes uh, the northern and western half of Massachusetts. And the Stone Walls in that region all date their origins to uh, three things that happened in the early 1800s. Uh, the first was uh, Napoleon going to war against this, the the Spanish in 1806. And the Spanish had developed this special breed of sheep, the Merino, that everyone wanted. Uh, the Spanish were very smart. They had an embargo on the sheep. They exported the wool liberally. They didn't want anyone to get a hold of that breed. But because of the war, uh, they couldn't really enforce the embargo. And it just happens that a Vermonter named William Jarvis was the consul to Portugal. And he was able to smuggle 4,000 Merino sheep out of Spain through Portugal and brought them back to New England. So now we have Merino sheep here. Two years later we go to war with britain in the war of 1812 and one result of that war was tariffs went up and all imported woolen textiles giving anyone here who could make wool and textiles a great market advantage and then uh two years after that in 1814 the power loom was invented with all the water coming out of our you know uh, new england hillsides Uh, it vaulted this region, become one of the major wool textile producing regions of the world. Now, to give you an idea how dramatic that is, uh, we start with 4,000 merinos in 1810. By about 1840, 30 years later, in the central portion of New England, uh, we now have 6 million merino sheep.
16: Whoa, wait, what? 4,000 to 6 million? Holy, so more Uh, sheep than people.
6: uh, There was probably a lot more sheep than people, but it was a booming economy. Um, and so by 1810, maybe about 20% of the landscape below 2000 feet was open agricultural land. By 1840, it's now about 80% open agricultural land. So all that northern western half of Massachusetts, all of Vermont, all New Hampshire, the southwestern uh, quarter of Maine, all that was clear cut of its about 60% of its forest in a 30 year time frame. Now. Many people think that these stone walls went up right as the land was open. It's only with a massive deforestation and no longer enough wood to make wood fencing that farmers have to go back out to their stone dumps, bring back the stone and make these stone fences. So all these stone fences we're seeing in that region all date between 1810 and 1840. And you mentioned the eighth wonder of the world. I've calculated that if you lined up all those stone walls, they would wrap the equator more than five times, they'd stretch Close to more than halfway to the moon. Um, I've also calculated if you piled it, it'll be six times as massive as all the pyramids in Egypt, and yet it was all done in just thirty years. So that's why, yes, I consider it the eighth wonder of the world. If we were on the Mediterranean, but we're not. Well, that is
16: that is is spectacular. So a lot of this has to do with keeping sheep in, keeping sheep out. Uh, So they are they are built for the sheep fever that gripped New England in that period, 1810 to 1840. Is that is that right?
6: That's right. So when you see stone fences out there, they may lie on property boundaries, but they weren't built to mark property boundaries. They're functional to keep sheep in pastures and out of crop fields and hay fields.
16: And sheep fever doesn't last forever, right? What happens in the mid-1800s?
6: Well, in the mid-1800s, that, that tariff is pulled away, and all of a sudden, and also the productivity of these farms was really going down because the sheep were overgrazing the land. Um, you know, there's just a lot of changing market dynamics now with cotton and all of this stuff just sort of puts a death knell in the sheep fever craze. And <clears throat> by 1845, um, farms are being given up completely and people are moving west to Ohio and uh, a huge period of land abandonment. So it was a very boom and bust sort of situation.
16: Let's talk about um, logging because that's, that's something that you've done a lot of work on in terms of reading the forested landscape for signs of logging. And you talk a lot about multiple trunk trees. When you're out in the woods and you see multiple trunks coming from hardwoods, what does that tell you about changes and disturbances in the forest?
6: Well, it's, it's one of two things. Um, it's either logging, as you mentioned, or that you could have had a wildfire there that heat-killed trunks and then um, they stump sprouted from the base of their trunks after uh, the above ground portion was killed um, generally though fire is only going to kill very small trees you know just a few inches in diameter so you can get a sense of the size of the tree um, that originally existed there by sort of drawing an imaginary circle at ground level through the middle of those multiple trunks And if you're getting trees that are you know eight that looked like the circle would have been about 18 inches or more in diameter. The odds are that you're looking at logging there. So looking at the size of the original tree can sort of separate logging from fire. So and fires here are uncommon. They do occur, but they're uncommon. But logging is pretty ubiquitous.
16: And 80 percent of the uh, of the Western Massachusetts forests, at least down below 2,000 feet, were logged out. Right? I mean, it was a different landscape. And not only were there much fewer trees back then, but there, the animals that go with trees weren't there. There weren't deer, there weren't uh, turkey, there weren't bear, there weren't beaver. There weren't any of those animals. Is yep. that right?
6: That's true. I mean, they, a lot of those were just extirpated because all their habitat was gone. I mean, one of the interesting things about turkey uh, that we've learned with their you know, coming back is we didn't realize what a big factor they were in uh, influencing the dynamics of the forest understory. When I did my undergraduate work back in the late 60s, early 70s, I was taught that you'd never find white pine growing up under an oak canopy. And everywhere I went back then, that was the case. You'd never find white pine under an oak canopy. But today, it's quite common to find white pine growing up under an oak canopy because of the presence of turkeys. These large troop of turkeys go through the forest and start scratching up the leaf litter, exposing bare ground, and they create all these germination sites for small seeded trees that otherwise couldn't establish. So we didn't know that. Now we know that turkeys are huge in terms of boosting the understory diversity of
16: our forests. We're talking with Tom Wessels. Tom is a terrestrial ecologist. He is a sleuth, a detective. He is the Sherlock Holmes of forests and a professor emeritus at Antioch University, New England, in the Department of Environmental uh, Studies. Tom, you talked about fire not being a big deal, the way it is out west. My goodness, every day it seems to go by, and we see another fire raging in the western part of this country. But wind can be a big deal here. Can you talk about some of the impact that wind has had and how we can read the forested landscape for signs of some of the hurricanes that periodically roar through New England?
6: Yeah, wind, we have a very robust disturbance regime from wind. So we've got, you know, in the summertime, microbursts happening with thunderstorms. Those winds are generally coming out of the west. Uh, And we then get, you know, the occasional hurricanes coming up, and those winds are coming out of the east. Um, So I would say that, uh, you know, the impact on a large scale is probably greater from, microbursts because they're so frequent you know we'll get many 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 a summer but every you know basically in you know massachusetts about every 100 years or so we will get really good standalone winds from a hurricane so if a tree uproots out of the ground its roots rip up excavating a depression which is called a pit and then uh, the upturned roots and the earth they carried eventually as those roots rot that earth it settles to make a mound. You get what's called pit and mound topography. And after a couple of centuries, our forest floors become very irregular on their surface with all these mounds and pits. The reason I'm mentioning this is, if you see a, a number of pits and mounds that are all oriented the same way, if you stand on the mound and look over the pit, you're looking in the direction from the wind came from. So you can often figure out by doing that if you're looking at the you know, the effects of a microburst or the effects of a hurricane, just by seeing if the wind's coming out of the west from microbursts or out of the east from hurricanes.
16: Um, I drive the section uh, in East Hampton around Mount Tom, and you can just still see the effect of that microburst. And that was how many years ago? And, uh, and it's so interesting to look at the, different, uh, the differences in forest dynamics uh, following that that huge wind event, and if you talk to real old timers around here, everybody can remember the 1938. Uh, Tom, what happened in 1938, and why was that such a big deal? It the
6: 1938 hurricane was a really unique hurricane. It was quite large, probably a Category Four hurricane when it made landfall uh, on Long Island, um, but the thing that was unique about it was the speed at which it was, was traveling northward. You know, most most hurricanes are just creeping northward. This storm was moving northward at rates about 40 miles an hour. And so that meant that as it came into New England, it hung together as a hurricane almost all the way through New England, which is very unusual for a, a, a hurricane to travel that far over land and not sort of fall apart, but it was because it was moving so fast. so it. It made landfall in New England down, um, you know, to the to the east of New Haven, cut up across the Connecticut River around Deerfield, went up over the spine of the Southern Green Mountains and then made it up over towards uh, the western shore of Lake Champlain. It was pretty much a hurricane the whole way until it gets up to Lake Champlain. And because of that, it left a huge swath of downed trees all the way from coastal Connecticut up, you know, into Northern Vermont, which was very unusual uh, for a
16: hurricane. We're talking with Tom Wessels. Tom is a terrestrial ecologist and a professor emeritus at Antioch University New England and he is a detective a sleuth. When we come back we're going to talk about changes in the forest due to blight, insects and diseases uh, stick with us.
5: Thank you Dr. Watson I
14: close my
0: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
11: It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad, because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance, in partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000.
0: When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
11: For the
15: first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second class citizens.
0: 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
14: Everyone loves a clean house, but between our jobs and our families, who has time to keep the house clean? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love the opportunity to put my team of eco friendly cleaners to work in your home or business. At Green Love Eco Cleaning, we use our signature line of non toxic aromatherapy cleaning solutions to keep your home or office clean while promoting greener, healthier lifestyle options for you and your family. To find out more about the services we provide, check out our website at greenloveclean.com.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
5: And you are listening to Science and Sensibility with Brian Adams and his guest, the amazing Tom Wessel.
16: Tom Wessel is a terrestrial ecologist. He is a forest detective. He's the author of six books, and we'll get back to that and talk about some of those other books. And really, the book that we're talking about today is called Reading the Forested Landscape. A Natural History of New England. And it's written in sort of a detective fashion. What happened here? When did it happen? And how can you be out in the forest and sort of look at those changes and and try to solve the mystery of what happened uh, when? Um, I'm a transplanted New Englander. I moved here in early 1981. When I moved here, I thought, oh my God, you know, there are all these trees. They've always been here. It's always been heavily forested. And it really wasn't. Again, we talked about this already. You know, you go back into the early 1800s, and it's, it's a deforested landscape. And it's really amazing the, the, the changes that happened, the resilience of the forest to come back. Um, but there have been some really, really dynamic changes uh, due, to, uh, due to things that, that, uh, that a lot of people don't think about. Let's talk about American chestnut. If You go back into the late 1800s, early 1900s. Correct me if I'm wrong. Tom, but, you know, one out of every, what, three or four hardwoods was an American chestnut. It was great wood, very strong. The chest, chestnuts themselves were very good food for wildlife, for, for humans. Chestnuts were roasting on an open fire. But something happened to the chestnuts. Can you talk about that, Tom?
6: Yeah, and that, that chestnut roasting on the open fire was actually about European chestnuts. It what
16: people no. say <laughs> ain't people- so
6: people didn't ro- didn't roast American chestnuts. They were too good to roast. I mean, I I was um, lying
16: to my students for 20 plus years. There you go.
6: Well, oh, no, you weren't lying. <laughs>
16: Just not telling the truth. Okay.
6: <laughs> yeah. Well. In any case, yeah, you're right. I think down in the heart of its rain, places like Tennessee and Kentucky, one out of every three or four trees was an American chestnut. Probably not that common a tree up here although in the southern part of new england they were still a major part of the the forest community and they were immense i mean we have pre-blight photographs of chestnuts up to 13 14 feet in diameter down in the heart of their range and imagine a a hardwood tree of that size is hard to hard to imagine but in any case um the uh, chestnut blight fungus was accidentally introduced into the bronx region of new york back around 1904 it only took about 30 years for that exotic fungus to spread throughout the range of the American chestnut and pretty much decimate it. Um, it was probably the single most dramatic ecological event to happen to the eastern temperate uh, deciduous forest of, you know, North America in probably millions of years. It just it just was a dramatic event. Um, luckily, we do have trees that have resistance. Um, and I found now uh, in Massachusetts, five different stands of uh, American chestnuts that um, for chestnuts to create uh, viable uh, nuts, they have to cross-pollinate. And so I found five stands, we have trees that are resistant, that are cross-pollinating, making viable nuts that then have you know all these seedlings and saplings growing up in the forest understory. The problem is these trees only make it till about a foot or so in diameter, and then they die, but they've probably got 30, 40 years of reproductive time. And my hope is that each generation will grow a little bit longer before it dies. And eventually, uh, I would think that in time, we will have resistant American chestnuts coming back.
16: That would be really exciting. Another thing that forest ecologists uh, such as yourself are concerned about is uh, hemlocks. And American hemlocks have a horrible thing happening, which is a woolly adelgid. Can you talk a little bit about about that?
6: Yeah, the woolly adelgid, I mean, there's, we have a lot of, you know, new forest pathogens that are uh, we're dealing with. But the woolly adelgid is a big one for hemlock. Um, if you see hemlock twigs that have, like, little white woolly, you know, masses on, you know, the base of the needles, then that tree has it. And uh, one of the worst things to do is if you're traveling in the woods between, let's say, um, March until maybe July, you don't want to be brushing up against, you know, young hemlock trees because they may have those, uh, you know, uh, adelgids on them and you can pick them up in your clothing and then if you rub against another hemlock, you can pass it on. You could even take it to a new part of the forest. So we need to be sort of careful when we're out in our woodlands, uh, like I said, between March and July to make sure we're not, you know, rubbing against hemlock trees Their branches and then moving anything to other hemlock trees.
5: Tom Wessels, this is Buzz Eisenberg. And I have, um, we have eight beautiful hemlocks separate us from the highway, Route 112, where I live. And they now have it. What do we do with the wood once once it dies? Do we burn it? What do we do to stop the contagion?
6: Well, it depends how you want to treat it. I mean, a site like that, you know, if you wanted to, you could use uh, insecticides in those trees to save them. Um, they probably will get infected again. Uh, so it sort of depends on, you know, how people are going to go about it. Uh, I should say that, you know, in some cases you can be a little cautious. I'll just, I'll just tell a story about my father-in-law who had a hemlock that was growing on his neighbor's property overarching his house. And he hated that tree and he tried to get the guy to cut it down. He'd never do it. And one time we are down visiting, he goes, what are these white things on there? And I said, oh, that's, that's a woolly adelgid. That tree will be dead in six years. He goes, really? and he was so excited (laughs) and we watched it just dwindle and dwindle and dwindle until it just had little needle tufts on the end of its uh, twigs and i said yeah next year will be it well that tree came back and my father-in-law got really angry at me saying you told me that tree was going to die so some trees can fight it off and come back so there's good news there at least i mean the real problem for us particularly in massachusetts is that a lot of our old growth stands in Western Mass are hemlock dominated. And those old growth trees uh, are, you know, they have a hard time fighting it off because they're old. Um,
16: and hemlocks are such beautiful trees and offer so much to, to, uh, to the natural history of New England. Tom, we just have about a minute left. You are the author of six books, one of which we've been talking about today, Reading the Forest and Landscape. Um, do you have a new book in the work, in the works? And what is your latest book? And how can people get hold of those?
6: Well, um, you know, it's, it's, I think the best way is probably just ordering them online. I mean, you can go to local bookstores, I mean, and, and ask them if they don't have them. That's a good thing to do if you wanna support your local bookstore. But- Which we do. You know, local bookstores, I'm, I'm noticing, you know, are, they They turn over their books pretty quickly in terms of, you know, keeping them on the shelf. So, you know, after a year or two, books that have done well in the past are not there anymore. Um, but in any case, the, the latest book I did was, uh, New England's Roadside Ecology Explore 30 of the Region's Unique Natural Areas. Um, It's a book that's going into really cool places that are easily accessible by well-maintained trails right off a roadside, you know, trailhead parking lot. So you don't have to go very far. You can, you know, most of these are trails that are one to two miles that go through really cool areas. like you know, old growth forests or really unique ecological communities. Um, and then I'm sort of your guide. I'm interpreting what you're seeing as you do the walk. Um, and it's well photographed, so you have sort of guideposts by the photos of
16: where you are in the walk. Sounds like a great book to read and a great book to buy at your local bookstore. Ask them to get it. We've been talking with Tom Wessels. Tom is a terrestrial ecologist, professor emeritus at Antioch University. New England. He's the author of six books. Check them out. Get out there in the woods in this beautiful spring, New England days that we're going to be having, and enjoy the landscape. Read the forested landscape. Look at it as a mystery to be solved with Tom Wessel's as your guide. Tom, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Yeah, my pleasure.
16: I feel like I'm. uh,
0: You're listening to to Talk Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One of two women whom Superintendent Finalist Vito Peron addressed as ladies in an email last week is speaking out about the controversy. Suzanne Colby wrote on Facebook that she has no problem being referred to as a lady and she is not offended. However, she is respectful to those who may have been offended by the term. Colby also asked that her name not be defamed over something she had no say in. The controversy happened after the East Hampton School Committee offered Vito Perone the superintendent position and then quickly rescinded it. According to the Gazette, Perone is speaking with a lawyer and will not be discussing the incident further. A federal judge in Texas ruled last week that insurance companies do not have to pay for preventative care for patients anymore. Dr. Jonathan Bayek said this ruling is terrible news for public health advocates.
6: There are people who are going to need those services. And if you don't provide preventative care and people don't have the money to pay for it, they won't get it.
7: The Biden administration has said they plan to appeal the ruling. An investigation is underway after Turner's Falls High School reportedly received an anonymous generalized threat of potential school violence for today. Families of Turner's Falls High School and Great Falls Middle School received an email from Superintendent Brian Beck notifying them the threat is not considered credible at this time by the local police and school officials. Turners Falls High School is hosting a regional student council event today and remains open.
8: Good morning, couple of breaks of sunshine for the first half of the day, otherwise it's mostly cloudy today. Watch out for scattered showers, even a thunderstorm this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Partial clearing tonight, cooling down. Overnight low 36 to 42. Sun cloud mix breezy tomorrow. A high of 52 to 56. Dry for the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis. 101.5 WHMP.
13: At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted Best Local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running.
1: Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com.
15: You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and
7: sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org.
10: The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org. Call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If
2: you wanna learn, the literacy project is a
9: place for you.
5: And that is Take 5, which brings us to our Take 5 segment with the always uh, interesting—you know, Ruth Griggs, you always bring these people who are so talented. I I feel like I'm elbow to elbow with people who are so talented.
14: I I couldn't agree with you more. It's so exciting to have all of this talent in the Valley, coming to the Valley, loving the Valley, loving to play here. I was at Christian McBride's concert at Bombix last week, and I loved his comment. He said— Northampton, Massachusetts. This has always been one of the best places in the world to play music.
5: And I'll tell you, somebody who has access to the music that's played in this region, it's amazing. and I have heard our guest today three times, yeah. and each time I just walked out with a broader smile on my face, like I, I was just <laughs> treated to something very special.
14: Greg Abate. Greg Abate is our is our guest today. Um, saxophonist, flutist, composer, um, hard bebop player extraordinaire and yeah he knows how to put a smile on so and greg, sometimes you, we're can just, g- you
5: can hear the intelligence of somebody who's <laughs> who is playing because their music is so smart and greg is just one of those
14: people. right smart smart friendly and let's put a smile on people's face today greg so welcome 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 oh thank you
17: ruth uh, thanks for having me on your, on your program really is is really cool thanks
14: so uh, again, Greg, you are no stranger to Western Massachusetts. Um, I know as, you know, as Buzz is indicating, you have been a very welcome guest at the Northampton Jazz Workshop with Paul Arslanian for many years now. And yes. it, yeah, so, so let, let's start there. Like, uh, tell us about your experiences playing with that incredible Green Street Trio and um, just, just being here, the crowd.
17: It started like I was on tour in England, and I was speaking to Tom Reney um, on Skype or something. And he said, you should call this great piano player, uh, Paul Ocelanian. And I did. And then um, Paul got me there for the first time. It was probably 10 years ago. or, or And uh, it's just been great playing with Paul and uh, uh, John Fisher and uh, George, uh, George K. K. Yeah. So and I, I I played in three or four different venues that he had. It's, uh, right now there in the Drake, the, ho- the Drake Hotel, you know, played in, in the in, in the bowling alley uh, lounge, which is great. And the first place I, I played was in a it was in a hotel uh, uh, area. But uh, yeah, he's had me there like a lot of times, and I I look forward to it all the time. And I thought I would. When I have this gig at the Mary or at the Iron Horse, uh, I thought it only only uh, fitting to have that trio with me because we play together out there, and it's sort of a tradition to play with Paul's uh, trio, Green Street Trio.
14: Yeah, well, well, and they are they are I know they're such a joy to play with. So Greg is is uh, is making reference to the uh, double dose of Sunday jazz, which is happening on Sunday, April twenty third at. The new uh, performance ver- um, uh, venue called Marigold in East Hampton, right on Cottage Street, and it is it is a really cool spot. Have you ever played there before, Greg?
17: No, I have not. No, I'm looking forward to it.
14: Yeah, it's it's a wonderful spot. It's really gained quite a following. Um, so again, that's Sunday, April twenty third at the Marigold. So, yeah. so so, Greg. Um, let, let's let's uh, let's go. Let's dial it back to the past a little bit. I, I, I just want our listeners to understand who who they who they're hearing about here, who they're learning about this morning. Um, okay. Again, you, I know you're a Berkeley, you're Berkeley-educated saxophonist. Um, that again, you really are big into the into the bebop scene. Uh, tell us about how you ended up. Being such a, a great hard bopper, and maybe tell the listening audience what in heaven's name that means, anyway.
17: Well, I guess I, I do. A, I play a lot of different styles, but uh, when I was with the Artie Shaw band, I was starting to uh, gear into Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. And after I left that band, I started to go out on my own and barnstorm around uh, the, the world if I could. I went, starting in, in uh, Canada. And bebop is like a, uh, as you described, it's an after the swing period. It was like, uh, it was by the chosen few, like uh, that started at Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, Bud Powell. It was a more complicated, um, melodic form of music. And it took a lot of skill to play it. Like uh, virtuosity, like classical, studying classical music to get, they call it chops in music, but technique. So, I just had this, I was drawn into it, and I played with so many great masters of the bebop uh, era, uh, it taught me a lot to be in school with these different players. Yeah, in Berkeley, I did study uh, uh, classical and jazz saxophone, and composition and arranging, and it was sort of like, that was my first music school, and then, going on the road uh, to Los Angeles as a young uh, 23-year-old and then joining the Ray Charles Orchestra. playing uh lead alto with Ray Charles all over the world. I was in the Ray Charles School of Music. Then I came back at a fusion gig and then the Artie Shaw School of Music and then with the Phil Wood School of Music, Jerome Richardson School of Music, and all these great musicians. So it brought me to where I am today uh, in about 23 different... Um, Critically acclaimed recordings on different um, uh, record labels. Uh, one, the first one that catalyzed me uh, was Candid Records in England. My first recording was Live at Birdland with uh, James, the late great James Williams, Rufus Reed, and Kenny Washington. And that recording catalyzed me into three, four more Candid Records. Uh, you know, one with Richie Cole, Hilton Ruiz. George Mraz, and the, and the list goes on and on. And um, it come, uh, fast forward, um, I, was, I'm rec- I was recording for Wailing City Sound, and on my fifth recording, my most re- recent one is with Kenny Barron and uh, De- Desron Douglas and Jonathan Blake, recorded at uh, uh, Rudy Vangela's studio. And previous to that was uh, the, the Kindred Spirits with the great Phil Woods. Who is from, you know, Western Massachusetts? He, and he's
14: wasn't he a know, Springfield native? Phil Woods wasn't yeah. he a Springfield native? Because I remember at the Springfield Jazz and Roots Festival, um, they they really honored him for um, mm-hmm. for for being a native of this area. And, and, I, and we
5: honored him upon his death. It was such a terrible loss. But Greg Abate, I just wanted to say, not all of our listeners are jazz fans who will recognize the litany of names, but. I just want to throw in there, if you could expand Mount Rushmore to maybe 25 names, that was a Mount Rushmore of people that you have played with. Elbow <laughs> to elbow is really amazing.
17: Oh, thank you. I, I, it, to me, I, I, when I look at my life, I think, wow, you know, I've had help from a lot of people and, you know, and I've got inspired by a lot of people, which is, I feel lucky and fortunate. You know, but this, this particular, um, concert that i'm doing is is mainly um it's produced by um michael levine you know and his his group is opening up the radio juke uh juke the, the, the joint jazz
14: juke joint jazz well, hey. yep and that's
5: on that's on april 23rd you were saying
14: that's on april yeah they juke the, yeah. joint jazz is opening um which is which is a band that loves to open has has opened a lot at um, at Iron Horse in the past and is now moving over to Marigold. And, but, you know, this is, this is really such an honor to have you back in the valley, Greg. It's, uh, I, you know, I, I learned so much by having all of these different musicians and players on on the show, and boy, have I learned to, to respect the incredible uh, experience that you've had and the players. And it makes me understand why when you get on that stage, you light the world on fire. I mean, you play so hard, but so friendly and in such a warm way. It just draws everyone in. And we're actually going to listen to one of your, your tunes off of your, um, your album with Greg, about, with uh, Phil Woods. Um, Steeplechase, which is one of Charlie Parker's very well-known, very hard-boppin' tunes. So let's listen to Steeplechase on the break.
4: Thank you.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
1: 13 years ago in Hatfield, an experiment got underway. A farm staffed by people with disabilities. It went well, really well. Today, ServiceNet's Prospect Meadow Farm employs more than 80 individuals with disabilities. They're not just growing food, though they're good at that. They're growing in ways that'll make your heart sing. Now, Prospect Meadow Farm is taking a giant leap forward, transforming their farmhouse into a vocational training and production center, teaching farming, culinary skills, carpentry. It's a huge project put in motion by ServiceNet and a grant from the Mass Office of Economic Development. Thanks to additional funding by People's Bank, we're off to a great start. But Prospect Meadow is only going to fulfill its expanded mission with support from the community. Yes, that means you. Could you contribute to Prospect Meadow Farm? Be part of this remarkable program that employs people with disabilities, growing food and gaining confidence with their shovels and hoes, with their hands and hearts. Please make a donation at servicenet.org.
15: Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday bread euphoria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m.
1: At the Northampton-Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza, those croissants. Smell that bread, the baguettes, that New York rye. It's euphoria.
15: Bread euphoria. Bakery and cafe. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com.
13: Are you tired of living with chronic pain, knee pain, joint pain? Listen carefully, because now there are new regenerative treatments now available here. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, is now open, giving lasting relief to people with joint pain with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. Regenerative medicine uses highly concentrated healing agents from your own body. These powerful treatments can restore and repair damaged tissue in your achy joints, so you can move again without pain. QC Kinetics has over 100 clinics nationwide Wide and has treated thousands of patients with incredible success. Their advanced protocols are an exciting way to manage pain from arthritis and injury without surgery or steroids or pain pills. If you've got pain in your knees, shoulders, hip, or back, you need to check out these new treatments. They can actually help your body restore and repair itself. Call now to schedule your free consultation with the local medical professionals at QC Kinetics. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. It's your home for the resistance,
0: Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon, get informed then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman program, intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to three, right here on WHMP, 1015-1400-1240, WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
5: And we are back with Take Five uh, with Ruth Griggs in this wonderful conversation with Greg Abate, the extraordinarily talented musician and composer.
14: Yes, and we were we were just sort of having fun bopping around here and would love to talk a little bit more about like why that weird word bebop like where did that come from so so greg let's let's chat a little bit about that we understand kind of the evolution of the of the jazz form um but but why that name
17: well it's like uh imitative it's like in the origin of it's like imitative like coming from a vocalized version you know clip short notes fast, you know, it's like, um, it's really uh, like light speed, I call it, you know, it's one of my tunes on my new album. Uh, it, it's like in the moment, no premeditation, you know, you know, to play bebop and jazz in general, uh, true jazz is not thought of before it's played. It's, it's, it's played as you think of it. It's not something that you say, well, I'm going to play this and play that and when that measure comes up, I'm going to play that. It's like it's all or nothing. It's it, and you have to go with it, you know. So it's nothing. It's not, the structure is pretty free, freedom of speech, and like sort of a scat thing. with I think bebop's a slang. Uh, is probably I don't know exactly how how it was coined, but I it, I heard from um, the players that I play with that it was from dizzy Gillespie. You know, talking with, with Bird and that that name just became something that Disney that said like Bop B or Bebop so they said, Let's call it Bebop, not Bop B. You know yeah. what I mean?
14: Yeah. Well, it is very imitative, and it reminds me a lot of scat singing. Um, you know, being a, a jazz vocalist, I, I spent a lot of time working on, on scatting and the syllables, and the best way to become a good scat singer is to listen and to really listen to the horns. Um, um, you know, a bass line is going to help you kind of root you and ground you in the, in the, in the tune. But if you really want to sound like a great scat singer, you need to listen to the horns, and um, it's it's a it's a really it's a really fun thing to do too. Um, but but nice. just getting back for a second to um, you know the Charlie Parker the bebop how you said it's it's kind of free and it's of the moment. Yeah, one of the things I've tried to do is is just to learn um, ornithology and anthropology, which of course are two of Charlie Parker's you know most famous um, bebop tunes. And you know there's a there's a lead sheet. There are notes that that yeah. um, that that indicate that quote unquote melody. So,
5: but I also know yeah. as a, as just a, an audience member and not a musician, Greg Abate and and Ruth Griggs said sometimes when you come and you play with a group that you don't play with all the time, like the Green Street Trio, quite often you want to set the rhythm or the sound that you're looking for as a the person who's going to be, you know, the, the, the person out front. And you'll go, bop, 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 or you'll make this onomatopoetica kind of language to set it, and you all understand each other.
17: Oh, the temple, yeah. It's like, uh, well, getting to that, Really quickly, like I play in England quite a bit like, during the year, and I'll play like uh, 21 gigs, and they'll be with 21 different piano players and bass and drums, and I'll show up at the at the venue and just get get settled to play and maybe just blow a few notes, and so it's all it's all in the moment. Like certain people have, you have to read everybody immediately and figure out where they're coming from. And we're playing a concert for people that are paying money to come in there and hear me. And I'm with a different group every night. So I, I've got used to that communication with um, with musicians. But like getting back to ornithology and the notes, uh, Ruth, you said, like that one, that's like uh, based on how high the moon, you know? Right, said, right, a,
14: right. Ornithology, ornithology that. is, yeah. So
17: the, those are the notes in the tune, but when, when uh, improvisation is happening or, or, well improvisation to me is not playing jazz Impro- improvising is like you know making something happen uh, from nothing but when you play jazz you, 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 you sort of forget all that mechanical stuff and, and it's an intuitive thing and that's where, where the, uh, the zen part of music comes from playing jazz because it's such a high to be able to do that and, and, and mix it in with other human beings that it, it leaves you with a great high, as you may know when you when you uh, sing with a, a group, you know you feel you know really feel free. That's how it, how it is to me.
14: Well, so, uh, if, if, if if you all want to get that high um, out in our listening audience, you really do need to get yourself down to the Marigold in East Hampton on Cottage Street on Sunday, April twenty third uh, to listen to Greg. Um, and, you, you know, leading him, leading it off is Juke Joint Jazz, which is a, a really fun um, local group of, of some, of some nice, nice jazz cats, and then following up with Greg Abate, just absolutely firestorm of, of beautiful bebop sound. With the Green uh, Street Trio, led with Paul O'Slaney and George K. and John Fisher. So, the uh, that concert starts at 7:30 um, with doors at seven. That's again Sunday, April 23rd, um, and we, we're going to or- listen to a little bit more of um, of Greg's uh, music. But but you know we've got we've got a little bit of time before we get to that. So so Greg, um, yeah. tell us yes. a, tell us a little bit more about like. You know some of your like pl- favorite musicians like playing with Phil woods like why why Phil woods why was he your guy and you did this great recording with him kindred spirits yeah
17: we, we did a couple of recordings actually but I when I was like in school and I you know I, I looked I, I just loved his playing I thought he was so perfect without being like perfect you know he was like and I I, I liked uh, Jerome Richardson a lot. Jackie McLean, Cannibal Adderley, uh, Sonny Stitt, Art Pepper, all those alto players that were sort of like, they carried the real thing, you know? And, um, I just got, uh, I, one day I just decided to call Phil Woods on the phone. I just called him up and he said, he knew who I was. And I said, really? That's <laughs> great. He said, would you like to do a recording together? And he said, yeah, we'll, let's talk about it. So my, the recording company got in touch and, uh, we did uh, Kindred Spirits. That was the second one. The first one was done. Um, it was Greg Abate Quintet featuring Phil Woods. It's another one that I have. But that's what happened. Um, it, it, we did some gigs together where we drove like nine hours together in the car. We are going to Cleveland. So he said, well, pick me up, you know, in Delaware Water Gap. and We'll, we'll go and do the two nights in Cleveland. So here I am driving with my... Uh, my mentor or my idol of saxophones, and I'm driving him to Cleveland. And I'm, I'm thinking, I can't believe that Phil Woods is, is in my car. <laughs>
14: yeah, know? I had that experience once with Cyrus Chestnut. Uh, believe it or not, the, the great pianist, and he drove in my car for an hours, like going to church. It was amazing. So listen, we we've got to close this out now. But again, Sunday, April twenty third at the Marigold on Cottage Street in East Hampton to listen to the great Greg Abate Quartet with the Where Green Street Trio. Where can people get tickets? Um, its tickets are with at the Marigold website, which is ticks-marigoldtheater.com. Ticks-marigoldtheater.com. They're only 15 bucks, tickets. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna say thanks to Greg by listening to the Yardbird Suite, which is another great Charlie Parker classic. And we will see you. We will see you soon, Greg.
17: Yeah I, yeah, I want to thank Michael Levine for, for arranging this. Uh, this is the second time he's booked me with uh, the Green Street Trio. First time was at the Iron Horse. And he and his band have played 25 times in the Iron Horse over the last so many years. So, yeah, he, he's really great. I really thank thank him and thanks okay. to Paul Oslake.
5: It's and, been a it's been a pleasure, Greg Abadi. So uh, we're going to go out with kindred spirits. Thanks for all of you listeners for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember to walk the walk and listen, listen.
10: Dear
13: Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org. WHMP Northampton and
0: WRSI HD2